Welcome to So You Want to Talk About, a podcast where we have critical conversations in an intimate way. We're your hosts, Julie and Cambry. Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm so tired. Work is really just draining me. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Helps that we're doing things in-house a little bit more, though. Welcome back to another episode of So You Want to Talk About? So you want to talk about policing? Somebody has to. We should definitely talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So um, the general, I don't know about consensus, but everything that we're seeing now, uh, we're kind of seeing the extremes of people's encounters with the police. And they're not rare occurrences, especially for black people, but they're just extremes. Um, so we kind of wanted to share kind of our differences in experiences with the police and and a little bit of the history so for those of you who don't know police came from or policing really came about when there were slave patrols in the late 17 and 1800s and they would patrol lands looking for slaves that were trying to escape to bring them back to their plantations right the very inception of of policing was bred in this entirely inherent racist system of oppression and of, of oppressing people that were enslaved. Right. So any law that was created back then or within the system of policing was made to was made under the guise of slavery. Mm-hmm. So it kind of to continue to have those laws or continue to have those rules and guidelines in place is is racist. Mm-hmm. And Let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, just an iteration. So things have developed from this. Right. So the police we know today, um, or at least the system we know today, has come from many politicians and, of course, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even in the 50s, um, an aggressive and largely fabricated war on crime and drugs. Um, so... The government essentially flooded a lot of impoverished neighborhoods with drugs and weapons. Yeah, and there's, um, we won't talk about this today, but there is a whole, um, a whole lot of information on that. Yeah. But, but that really damaged communities. You put drugs and weapons into a community and then ask them to be okay and manage that. What, what did we expect when we did that? Well, so not only did you do that, you expanded both the definition of a criminal and you also mm-hmm. expanded the need for people to be in jail, it seemed like. Um, so when all of these politicians and the, and the president at the time was calling for a war on crime, then it made sense to justify using our tax dollars to uh, expand police forces in these cities, in these areas. And so if you pump illicit drugs and weapons into an area and then throw police in there, then of course everyone's going to look like a criminal. (laughs) You just made them a criminal. You started, you made it, yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, as the 80s turned into the 90s, uh, there were different laws that were enacted to allow for heavier policing as well as heavier or harsher drug um, offense sentences. Mm -hmm. And so you, 
when you make more things illegal or you punish them more harshly, that does make more criminals. If it wasn't a law before and now it is a, right. the same behavior, those people were not criminals and now they are. Just like if we were to decriminalize something, something people were criminals because of a certain behavior, now they are no longer which we won't talk about today either, but there's a lot of people in jail right now who I would imagine are furious. <laughs> Very. Um, as we're decriminalizing the thing they went to jail for for 25 plus years. But it just becomes a cycle that these areas that um, were flooded were typically areas that were black or, and oftentimes had already a lack of resources in general. So where there was education that needed and community building and all these things that people, basic needs that they needed to survive. Institutions that provided some hope for people. They were instead given something else. And so I think it's really important that, that we note that this, this does just create a cycle when yeah. you, the only way that you can survive, or not even the only way, but one of the ways you can survive um, or you can make your life a little bit better is a crime and people are giving you the resources to do that crime, but they're not giving you the resources for education. Right. It's kind of like your only path. Yeah. Um, well, it also becomes the only path that you know, um, and the only path that's around you. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But, um, like you said, a lot of these areas were impoverished areas, places that people would call the inner city. Um, so I, personally grew up in upstate New York, Rochester to be ex uh, exact, who's kind of feeling for our city right now um, because they're grieving the murder of Daniel Prude um, and they're kind of all in the streets as they should be. But I was a little bit in the rural area of Rochester, so it's very red. Um, a lot of people with Confederate flags for some reason in the north <laughs> of the country. Uh, and so I just remember I spent time between both areas. Um, of course, my school was in a very rural fields everywhere area. And then when we wanted to play basketball, which was kind of what we did after every, every day, uh, we'd go to the city. Our rural area was not that policed. I might have saw maybe one or two as I was driving through. But when I, whenever I went to the city, every single block every single block was police. And so there were times when we would, we were just kids. We'd want to play basketball and then we would just hang out on a corner or hang out in a park, a very public area. And anytime we were doing that, we were seen as a threat. It seemed like, um, police would, it's not like they would gently pull up and request that we leave. They would pull up on the sidewalk sometimes while we're standing there and just tell us that we were doing something wrong, or if we asked them why we had to disperse, they wouldn't give us an answer. They would just forcefully ask us to leave. So, Which is very different in contrast to my experiences. Yeah. And I grew up uh, for the beginning part of my childhood in California, San Jose, California, which is, uh, at the time, in you know the early 90s, it was very diverse, but... Then when I moved to Kansas, which was very, very white. Is still. <laughs> yes, uh, especially the uh, suburb that I lived in. There were no police. Yeah. I don't remember seeing policemen drive through my neighborhood. I don't remember seeing, I don't really remember seeing them ever. I think that. 
my interactions with the police were so limited that it, I don't think that I can sit here and tell you a time where a police officer ever came up to me when I was standing or hanging out with friends. Mm-hmm. It was just not an experience that I had. Which then... And ex- I did all the things you did. You know, like hanging out at a park, doing those are normal childlike right. behaviors, and no one ever was like, mm, "All right, too many move of you along. in one spot." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But also, kind of shows that if you are, if you don't have a bad experience with them, and you're constantly told growing up that they're heroes, that they're these people who are of ethical, pray, you know what moral, I mean? Moral. Yeah. They are guided um, by you know the utmost <laughs> to moral serve compass. And protect. Yeah. Uh, then of course, when people are like, no, we've had a bad experience with them. We kind of want them to not be around anymore. Then you're going to be like, well, I've always known these people as heroes. So how can I... They're protecting me from this crime that I don't experience. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So that kind of goes into this issue that, again, is a huge topic, but it goes into redlining. Mm -hmm. So um, just a very brief, uh, maybe, explanation of redlining. And there is like you said, a lot that goes into it. But redlining came about when uh, cities were planning and um, financial institutions were looking at who to give money to. They would outline neighborhoods in cities as A, B, C, or D. Being A being, you know, up and coming and a lot of money or a good neighborhood. Green. Green to invest in. So financial institutions would use this map as A. Okay, we are really going to invest in these neighborhoods and people that live in these neighborhoods. And D would be in decline or declined and red. And they would actually be, uh, if you ever look up maps, you can see redlined areas. And financial institutions would intentionally not invest in the community or the people in the community. So let's Mm -hmm. say I'm a homeowner and they would, I should also note that these neighborhoods were black neighborhoods predominantly. Mm -hmm. And that if I was a member of that neighborhood or in that community and I wanted to move to another house or another neighborhood, uh, or let's say I'm moving cities, Mm -hmm. you know, and I need a loan because of where I lived, a lender would not give me money because I was not worth the interest or the investment at all right. because of where I lived. And there was nothing I did. You know, There's nothing these communities did. They were already poorly underfunded by the government, and then the government just doubled down, right. labeled them red. White people knew not to move there because there was nothing there. No one was investing in these communities. Right. That kind of reminds me of this really quick story, which was I was going to the bank once and my previous roommate, a friend of mine, I was really dressed up and he said, why are you dressed up going to the bank? And it, in my mind, it just, it seemed like such a small thing to me now. Um, it's kind of instinctive, but I was like, oh, you don't dress up before you go see, before you go to financial <laughs> institutions. And he's like, no, why would I have to? And it made me think of how, how embedded that is or ingrained that is in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, from and that's history. I mean, like you just explained, you, they wouldn't give you a loan for anything, so you had to basically look as white as you could. And and I would assume someone taught you that. Yeah, yeah, and that was by necessity of survival, not because they wanted me to dress up every time I went to the <laughs> bank, but um, they just felt like that was something that I had to do. So, with going into to redlining, you subjected 
minorities, specifically black people, to this plot of land, and then you not only didn't put money into it, you took money away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you began to, I mean, if you think about places like the south side of Chicago or any place that's, that's labeled in the media as a very dangerous, crime-ridden, desolate place, mm-hmm. um, they also have the highest police budgets. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to go, before you go into the budgets, I think that it's really important to, to note the connection between uh, a place where the suburbs, which are not redlined mm-hmm. and not policed, and, you know, the farther in you go into a city, as things are labeled, you know, quote, inner city, which really just reads redlined mm-hmm. or underfunded, those are heavily policed. And so just the experiences of both of us in two very different states had that same experience of um, being segregated in those ways mm-hmm. by police. You could see the segregation of which was and wasn't policed. Yeah. Yeah. And Rochester, where I grew up, was actually a uh, what people would deem a crime-ridden, crime-ridden place as well. And our police budget was high. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of debunks this theory that a lot of people say, which is you need an elite, uh, <laughs> heavily funded police force to take on crime. Well, the same places that they're calling are the same places they're saying shouldn't even be livable are the places that they're spending $200, $300 million a year on their police. So you'd think that if I was spending so much money on police that my crime would be zero, right? Essentially, or would at least be going down, but instead it's going up. Which doesn't make sense. That seems so counterintuitive. And it's also money that you could be spending building community. Right, so I think that goes back into what we originally talked about, which is what do those things, what what do people need? Um, and if it must not be police, yeah, <laughs> because we're giving them lots of police, <laughs> right? And that doesn't seem to be, you know, working. Yeah, and it—I mean—it kind of goes back to this narrative the media used to paint, and this isn't some crusade against the media, <laughs> um, <laughs> but. There was a time when they would paint black people as just criminals. Just every time you saw a black person on television, they were in handcuffs. I remember that in in the late 80s and in the 90s especially. Mm -hmm. And they thought it was this harmless thing to do or this factual even thing to do. But if if that's all you watch, especially if you're in a suburb, you don't see black people Mm -hmm. that often. And the only time you do is on TV in handcuffs. Of course, you're going to see one in person and think that person's poor or they're a criminal. Mm-hmm. That's all I've been presented to, you know, that's all has been presented to me. So <clears throat> it is a campaign strategy that a lot of politicians yes. used, Nixon and Reagan specifically. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, I know, I mean, with the Willie Horton video, that kind of sparked this. It was such a galvanization for the war on crime. Mm-hmm. They really, uh, you know, if they didn't have any other reason for it when that happened, mm-hmm. It was like, well, see, we told you. Right, <laughs> right. And so now as a uh, someone who consumes media, which is on a regular basis, you don't have to be an avid consumer of it, but um, all you, you see black, so you see criminal. And so police are also people who watch the media. They're also people who watch the news. They're average and so people. They're carrying that bias into their job as well. Now, if you are any other job, then the stakes might be a little lower because you don't have a weapon every day. Still harmful, but not necessarily deadly yes for sure harmful just in not recognizing your privilege or whatever it is but Mm -hmm. when it comes to police those biases that they carry they carry into 
potentially tense interactions with people that might not be doing anything wrong, but their biases feel like they are. Mm -hmm. It creates tension where there doesn't need to be. Right. And so, um, kind of like what you said, just these different lives that we lived just based on the place, places that we grew up. And I remember frequently even just getting pulled over, um, friends and I would get pulled over or I would get pulled over on my own often and it would become such a frustrating thing to know that you have to listen to authority quote unquote but also if you ever ask can I ask what I'm being pulled over for there was never an answer I can't remember one time where I got an answer for that Mm, and it's interesting because when the few times that I've been pulled over I'm pretty sure I've been pulled over way less than you have Mm -hmm. they would say do you know what I pulled you over for and if I said, I don't know, what did I do? They would immediately, there was no, even if I said, I don't know, I didn't even have to ask. They would say, well, you know, you were going 40 and a 25. I don't know right. what it was. Yeah. Uh, mine were often, the beginning of the interaction was license or registration. And if I asked any question, there was no, there was no answer or no acknowledgement of the question. And so, um, again, kind of goes back to just how differently we grew up, but also how differently we'll perceive the police. So, of course, there's going to be skepticism when a police uh, is in our presence now because they were constantly threats to our fun. They were threats to our existence. And going back in history and even now, if we're just standing on a corner, hanging out, dribbling a basketball, and that scene is threatening, mm-hmm. I don't know what else we can do to seem less threatening. Yeah. So, <clears throat> it kind of, and just to go back to, a little bit of the history of it. Um, the system that we see now was not necessarily the system that was, uh, it wasn't always this way. So by that, I mean, in the twenties, um, there was a man named August Vollmer who was, they call him a hyper progressive. <laughs> well, this is the twenties we're talking about, <laughs> right? It's weird how the people who are hyper progressive tend to be on the right side of history, but he had said he wanted police and the police system to have a more communal, um, service. So to provide or to have more of a psychological lean toward how they policed people. So they would want to um, hire more social workers, hire more psychologists and call police for extreme crimes. But for things that might have been related to mental health, for things that might have been less extreme than a, you know, a homicide. He wanted to call on professionals in that field rather Mm -hmm. than having the police handle everything. So like calling in a professional for their job. That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know. When I think about police, I think about teaching and how important it is for teachers to live where they teach and be a part of the community because it's really hard sometimes to know how you're doing a service. A police officer is providing a service. A teacher is providing a service. It's very difficult to provide a service to someone you don't know. Yeah. So... For example, if I am a police officer and I go into this neighborhood and I don't know anybody on the street and I, I don't know the families that live here, I don't understand black people because I live in a white space, I've grown up in a white space, and like you said, I'm a consumer. And mm-hmm. so I'm a socialized American and the things that I've seen on TV have created what I believe to be true why would I doubt it? Exactly. So all these things I bring into my job and, and so I'm looking for crime. That's right. Rather than living in the neighborhood and providing kind of like Volmer, this communal approach 
and understanding what the community needs and figuring out a way to provide that. Right. And I do think it's a lot to ask of one job, whether it's a teacher or a policeman or, you know, whoever, um, a social worker to do everything. But that's why we all have different jobs. Yeah, that's why we all go to different schools for different practices, for different trades, for different expertises. So, yeah, so it feels it feels a little bit like we are asking people to do a job they're not trained in. Mm-hmm. And we are also not really giving them the skills by by not really asking them to get to know the community because if if we say serve and protect, it doesn't really feel like we're protecting the community from anything if like we had talked about with those budgets if those are so high and the crime is still so high we haven't really done our job exactly and it also gives justification to continue to inflate their budgets because Mm -hmm. they're thinking these police do the widest spectrum of responsibilities Mm -hmm. and so they keep throwing money in there and almost broadening their responsibilities I remember someone had told me that just brought this to my attention that it's odd the same person who can be in a in a shootout with a criminal is also the same person that can pull me over for a traffic ticket. Yeah, that doesn't really, those don't feel like the same job. Exactly. And um, the other reason that some of those budgets are getting large is because when those offices are sued and they pay money in, um, what are those called? Settlements? Yeah, in settlements, now the police budget for the settlement. So rather than fixing the problem and not killing someone, mm-hmm. we just plan to kill people accidentally. We put it in the budget. We literally put in the budget for settlements. And that just, I think that kind of brings us to this whole idea of what reformation and defunding and abolishing looks like because these budgets are so big. These police are doing so many jobs. There's just, it's rooted in uh, racism it's like, how do we move forward? Because it's it's obviously not working. Yeah, and there's also so much history involved with this that it's hard to just assume the people who are now, just because it's gone you know, generations to generation, that they're different. They were raised by the same people who were in this racist system, so it's not like they're all of a sudden just going to revolutionize the system. Exactly. Yeah, you, you can't. It's very hard to move forward when every avenue is blocked and the system is designed to keep you in this, if, if we want to use the analogy of, you know, this redlined area, right. you're, you are only in this, in this box. It's very difficult to, to do much because of all those different systems that are designed to keep you there. And if you strip away all the resources from someone or from an area and they need to survive, then course crime is going to happen. What else can you resort to and what else do you know? And even... If you don't live in those areas, I think we've seen very recently, um, not even recently, we've seen it recently visually, but we know that it doesn't really matter where you live. If you are Um, a black man or a black family living in a very, um, what's considered to be a wealthy white neighborhood, you will be policed. You stand out. Yes. So police don't just police poor black people. They police all black people. They might yes. more heavily police in certain neighborhoods, but they are everywhere. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't matter. You can't really escape that. It feels. Yeah, and I think the way you said it a little bit ago, which was 
they're looking for crime Mm -hmm. rather than, I mean, if that's the definition of policing, that's not preventing crime. Which is so funny because it feels like we've, this idea of police should prevent crime. We've attached this, (laughs) this very, um, moral service that they prevent crime. And then when it happens, they're there to stop it or they're there to prevent it from the beginning. They're not (laughs) there to prevent crime. They should be ideally, but it's not their job to prevent crime. There are psychologists who are there to prevent crime. There are mental health experts who are there to prevent crime. There's teachers. There's, there's teachers. There's social workers. Even all financial things. institutions that refuse to give to these communities, if you gave to them, that could also prevent crime. Yeah, it's not like a policeman is going to see a criminal in the act of doing something and stop it. That's not really how that works. They look for, they especially look for heinous crimes. Yeah, or suspicious behavior. But anyways, it's... We could go for a long time on that one. <laughs> So it feels like there needs to be a change. Yeah. So um, because of because of what has been coming out about, there's been talk about police reform for decades. Um, yeah. I remember about 10 years ago, I listened to some podcasts on it, and they talked about trying different things as it came to bias training with mm-hmm. like specifically the Las Vegas police department and we're still in the situation that we're in. Yeah. I mean, if you have a system that is inherently racist mm-hmm. and then just because you put a dress on it, doesn't make it racist. <laughs> not, racist. It not racist. <laughs> um, it's just a very pretty racist system. And that's what we've concocted here, which is the outskirts or, uh, at the surface, it's not supposed to be racist. It's supposed to be ethical. That's why they put protect and serve everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but inherently there are biases and there are, I mean, the system itself um, is very racist. So now we've kind of shifted from reform, not shifted from, but there are other ideas from reform to abolition. Yeah. And so, you know, so reform is, you know, a very minor step. It would be talking about training and bias training and things around monitoring the way people police in their interactions and um that kind of thing like a tighter scope on police and an example of that is in 2014 and 2013 when we so heavily vouched for body cams that is a perfect example of working within the system to reform results and the idea behind body cams being well if police knew they were being watched maybe they wouldn't do such bad stuff and now look where we are it didn't seem to matter But we've now moved a step and we've been talking a lot about defunding and abolition. And so we just kind of wanted to touch on what those two things Mm -hmm. really meant, because I think it can be, I think people are afraid whenever we talk about defunding something because it's money and people, you know, we are in capitalist America. (laughs) Like, well, you already took my tax dollars. So what are you spending it on? Right. And then we hear the word abolition, which is ironic because abolition was a you know, a word when we enslaved people. It was heralded. Abolitionists are are heralded. <laughs> now they are. Right. We've re- rewritten history to say, well, that was good. We, right. we would have been abolitionists back then. We say, even though we can be now. <laughs> That's it, though, what you just said. We can be now. So defunding and, ab- and abolishing the police are in almost exactly the same in a lot of their policies, mm-hmm. which... I think is important to touch on when we talk about defunding and abolishing, we're not talking about taking money and just poof, it's gone. We're talking about putting money into services that police are already providing 
we would be taking off of their plate right. certain jobs and we would be putting that into paying for people that do actually provide that service as a professional. And imagine if your tax dollars, if you knew where they were going and it's and there was an allocation for mental health expert is paid X mm-hmm. <laughs> for certain calls like what happened in my hometown. Right. And when we see people that we know in our neighborhood, um, you know, I think we know some of our residents just by look. And so when they need support, we would mm-hmm. know who to call, but yeah. we don't always know who to call. Right. So being taking those budgets and appropriating them into the correct or allocating them into the correct buckets based on the community's needs. So back right. to what... Um, Back to what Volmer said, (laughs) when you know what your community needs, you can then provide those supports. Mm -hmm. And if we know that the community needs uh, a community center and rec services and they need a place. Educational institutions. They need education. They need social workers. They need financial counseling. Whatever they might need. um, we would provide those services to that community rather than punishing them for for anything that we deem could be criminal or suspicious. Or for not giving them the resources in the first place. They're being punished and they don't even know why. Yeah. So that is what defunding would look like. Right. Abolishing looks very, very similar. The only difference would be that um, defunding believes that police are necessary in the case of true violence and extreme emergencies. Right. So there would still be a budget for that. They would still do that. Abolitionists, however, don't believe that. They ultimately call for alternative interventions, even in the case of extremely violent crimes. More community-based solutions mm-hmm. and policing of their own. So it there is a lot when it comes to policing and we could talk about this. There's so many facets to it from the education system, the redlining to just from a historical standpoint. Yeah. There's too many intersections to talk in full about and in depth about, but we do have a lot of resources that we will link today for you. And hopefully we got the conversation started. on another episode of So You Want to Talk About. We hope we got you talking about it. We recognize that this is a big topic with a lot of facets and we weren't able to touch on everything, but we did link a few resources below that go a little bit more in depth. At this time, we really encourage you to think about your community and its needs. Reimagining the system as if you were to build it from the ground up, how would you support your community? We'll see you next week.